So, uh, it's New Year. Uh, New Year, and I think every year we get to this moment, and it's not just New Year, but it's New Year's resolutions. Anyone got some New Year's resolutions? I won't ask you what they are. Literally nobody. Uh, It's good. It's good. Well, I know, because of a little study that Forbes Health did, or a very big one, that in fact, about 62% of Americans feel some pressure at this time of year to have New Year's resolutions. Uh, And overwhelmingly, apparently, our New Year's resolutions are around health. They're about physical and mental health. Apparently, for the first time this year, about half of us will use some sort of app to keep us going through our goals. Uh, And I also know that statistically, uh, New Year's resolutions don't always last that long. I mean, I'm not being... Uh, cynical, I just happen to know that my parking lot at my gym was very busy this week. Uh, and I'm hoping it might not be in February. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. But I think whatever your take is on New Year's resolutions, behind them, of course, is a really noble desire for health. A hunger for health. If that isn't a bit of an oxymoron. We desire, don't we, at the start of a new year to be healthier to be more stable, to be better people, to have better habits, to live well. And of course, those are really good thoughts. Those are really noble kind of thoughts. And I'll tell you something, that as a church, we also have those same thoughts. As we enter into a new year, our desire is for health. We, uh, in next week, will be commissioning four new board members. They're members of this church. You know and you love them already, but we want to expand the size of our accountability structure and board, and so that'll make 10 people on our, our board, which is wonderful. And a lot of what they're going to be talking about over the next month is how do we be a church that grows and is healthy at the same time? Because I think what we've come to realize over the last few years, particularly, is that health as churches is not an inevitability. It's not an inevitability. Even amidst all of that we've seen over the last few years, amidst the tectonic changes of culture, changes in the way we build community and communicate, the increased spiritual options in the online world actually means that across the US now, over half uh, churches are in decline. In fact, many are in significant critical decline. Very, very few churches are at their pre-pandemic level. And even where churches are numerically growing, I think we've seen, haven't we, the painful lessons that that doesn't also mean health. I think we've seen, to our cost over the last couple of years, how actually sometimes the most shiny and glamorous communities can be hiding a lot of brokenness under the surface. I uh, spend a, a bit of time every single month with a spiritual director, and I felt like in 2023, every time I went to see him, it started in the same way. I can't believe it. I can't believe that friend, that person who was like a mentor, that incredible leader who was doing incredible kingdom work has gone by the wayside. I can't believe the unhealth, the abuses of power, the sexual sin that's been going on and it's seemingly all over the place. Sadly, we've realized that growth and health don't always go hand in hand. And so how do we grow and be healthy? Because I don't know about you, but I I don't want this church to ever become a place of unhealth, and I don't want to become a person of unhealth, and I know that some of you unfortunately have actually had to live and witness firsthand experiences of brokenness and unhealth in Christian communities. So how could we write a different story in this place? How do we grow as a church and be healthy, but also because the church is nothing more, nothing less than the people of God, community of God in time and space, gathered and full of the Holy Spirit, 
how can we be healthy people? How can we build good things into our spiritual lives? And so uh, between now and Easter, we're going to take a journey together. We're going to ask that exact question about how to be healthy. And we're going to partner with our friend John Mark Homer, who is at our sister church in Finnish Church Santa Monica. And we're going to take a series uh, through our Sundays, but also through our small groups to think about the life of spiritual health. How in 2024 we might be more healthy as more healthy kinds of people. Um, and so we're going to have our reading um, and we're going to look this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, it's always great to have your Bible here at Vintage. Uh, you can grab it on a phone and if you uh, don't have access to it, it'll be up on the screens. And this morning for the first time, we're going to read it in the ESV translation, just as a, a particular way of looking at this passage. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will discover, disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy it, him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in his age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. The word of the Lord. I just realized everybody this morning has an English accent. I'm, I'm so sorry. If you need a translator, uh, we have them available. Um, that doesn't always happen, I promise. <laughs> 
Paul is writing to this early church in Corinth. Corinth is a very bustling international city. It's a very multicultural city, maybe like LA of our time. And in a previous missionary journey, which you can read about in the book of Acts, Paul has planted this church in Corinth. And it has started to bloom in the heart of the city. People have come to faith. They've been saved. They've been baptized along the way. And Paul's left to go on to plant other churches. But he's been listening out. He's been waiting for the news of the church in Corinth to figure out what has been going on. And he's hoped that the church would have spiritually matured. It would have grown up a little bit. But instead, what seems to happen is that they've got stuck in this sort of like spiritual toddler phase. But by Paul saying to them, we want you to get mature, to have a spiritually balanced diet, what's actually happened is that these different communities have sprung up all like little sects around one particular powerful leader's voice and teaching. There's this means celebrity leader culture which has led to infighting and complaining and jealousy. As I read through it, I thought, oh my goodness, isn't there so much that we could learn in the 21st century about what it means to be church? And the first thing I think which we need to contend with is the fact that it's so easy sometimes for faith to be the wrong way up. And we end up with the designer spirituality. You see, what I've noticed that is so easy to do is to try and fit God, to fit the gospel, to fit Jesus into our existing worldview. I'm pretty certain, in fact, that there are two different ways to look at Jesus. And this is the first way, this little diagram here. You'll see I'm an amazing graphic designer, amongst many other things. Um, But if you can read it, and you might not be able to see all the words on the screen, you'll notice that there at the top is us, smiling at the beginning of a new year. And when we look out at the world, we actually do it through a worldview. Um, I've written a lot of P's up there, but you could write some other things if you can't see them. We look at the world through things like our personality, our parents, and those who've gone before us, the preachers and those who've taught us. Our preferences, our political views, our pride, like our ego, the place that we come from and our culture, our perspective on various different issues, how we view things like the poor, even our views of things like power. Maybe you could write a lot of different things up there as well that would affect your worldview. And what we do is we look out at the world through those things. They try and inform us about how we make decisions. And we do it through those lenses also in the way that we speak of God. Um, this is my, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite possessions. I've told you this in an illustration before, but I've always forgotten to bring them with me. Um, but these are my sunglasses. Um, I, I bought them when I first came to LA, um, and I absolutely love them. And the reason that I love them is because when I look through them, they change the image quite a lot. This is, I took a lot of cover pictures this morning of what they look like. So this is the first picture of what they look like. They are, that's without my sunglasses on, looking out over the slightly snowy things. And that's what they look like when you put them on. Now, if you look closely, the reason I like my sunglasses so much is because they make everything look slightly greener. You notice that? The trees, the fields, even the mountainsides look a little bit greener. And for someone who doesn't come from around here, who pines occasionally for a green, luscious field, they make me feel a little bit, just a little bit more at home. Now, what my sunglasses don't do is they don't fundamentally change the picture. They don't provide me a different image altogether. But what they do is that they let different wavelengths of light through at certain different levels. They amplify certain light levels and they reduce other ones. And so when I look at them, I get a slightly different picture to what is real and actually true. 
And when we look at God, theologians tell us we all have like that kind of lens, a hermeneutic lens. None of us are first century Jews, as far as I'm aware, which means none of us don't have any sort of lens. We all have a worldview. But here's the problem. If we're not honest about the worldview we contain, if we take our existing view of who we think God is and what Jesus is like and how the world works, we can almost use it like a grid that we look through and then we see Jesus on the other side of it. And we pick the bits of the gospel that we really like. I mean, I don't know what it is about the good news of Jesus that you really like. Maybe it's like, oh, Jesus was such a nice guy. He was just so kind to everyone. And out of that, we can build a theology of Jesus being just so incredibly kind. Or what about it is that Jesus actually spoke truth to power and he turned over tables in the temple court and like Jesus was a political revolutionary. And we can come up with a worldview and a theology about Jesus being a political revolutionary. In fact, I even had one friend who was absolutely convinced that Jesus was a fat man, a very fat man. And I said to him one day, like, how could Jesus be a fat man? He said, well, Jesus was a fat man because of all of the parties that he went to. Like, he was always eating. And then his theology was that vegetarianism must have been a sin as well, in his view. Right? What we do, and we don't mean to do it, but we look through the grid of the things that we already hold to be true, the things that we care about, the things that we believe, the things that we want to be true of Jesus, and we look through them and we say, well, that's what Jesus must be like. That's what the gospel is. We take the bits that we like, we attach to them the verses which back up our claims, and we build a whole view of a designer Jesus who supports who we are. Now, I know in this room we'd be like, I'd never do that. That's ridiculous. There's no way that I would do that. But let me just ask you this question. Does Jesus already agree with you on everything in your life? Does he already agree with every decision that you're going to make? Does he already agree with how you see every issue that's out there? And if he does agree with you on everything, may I suggest there's only two possibilities. The first possibility is that you are a perfectly formed human being, discipled to the nth degree, in which case we'll call you saint and you can preach for the rest of the series. Or alternatively, just maybe you've turned Jesus into the one that you'd like him to be, more than the one that he might be. Designer spirituality is a very easy trap to fall into. So how could we write maybe a different story? Well, before I get to that, let me think about the life of church, because it's not just, I think, on an individual level that we can turn Jesus into who we want him to be, but I think we can also do it as churches too. You see, in Corinth, what had happened is these people had come to faith, they'd come with their pre-existing Greek and Jewish worldviews, and they'd translated it into Jesus, and then they'd gone to put it under the teaching of a particularly powerful leader like Apollos or Paul, and they'd created a vision of the good news of Jesus. But the problem was, is that their visions didn't line up. And they had splintered off from one another and started to attack and bickered. And of course, if you were really honest, that's not a problem that just happened in the first century. If we're really honest and we look actually around the church of the last 500 years, we realize it happens all the time. 500 years ago, a guy called Martin Luther, he was a German Catholic monk. He nailed his thesis to the door of a, uh, uh, in Wittenberg in Germany, and he was seeking to see reformation of the Catholic Church. He wanted to see transformation. There was the Eastern Orthodox Church, there was the Western Catholic Church. 
And actually, out of his actions, he sparked the Great Reformation, which birthed new churches all over the place. Today, there are around 30,000 different denominations and networks of churches in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I think so many churches are started for great reasons. New networks, the gospel goes to the far ends of the earth. It's wonderful. But if we're really honest, as friends, how many denominations, how many networks, how many even churches were really started by people who basically wanted to take their vision of Jesus, their complete picture of perfection of what Jesus is really like, and weaponize it and use it as a way to criticize other Christians and split from them, to refuse to be brothers and sisters, but to basically claim the perfection view of truth. Sadly, even if we look around the world, we take that design of spirituality and it gets like translated out and seems like it leads in one of two pathways. Either it leads us in down the path where we basically reduce Jesus to being just a slightly more moral version of ourselves, just a nice guy. And we come up with a nice Christianity, which just really is like everything else around us, but just with a bit of a nicer Christian smile. Or we take such a narrow, dogmatic view of our vision of perfection in theology that therefore we lose any scope and potential that we might not have fully figured everything out and that there's room for more to be learned and grow into. Either way, what we're left with is less, much less than the good news of Jesus. So what might be a better way if that's not a good way? Well, may I suggest that the invitation at the start of a new year is to turn the whole thing upside down. To instead make Jesus the lens by which we see the world. To actually allow our love of Jesus to be the way that we interpret the world around us. You see, the world isn't supposed to be the lens by which you see Jesus. Jesus is supposed to be the lens by which you see the world. Let me just say that again to make sure we're all with us on the beginning of a new year. You see, the world isn't supposed to be the lens by which you see Jesus. Jesus is supposed to be the lens by which you see the world. Maybe look at this second diagram here. What if, what if the invitation at the start of the year was to look out at the world and to ask the question, what does Jesus think here? What would Jesus do here? How does the gospel inform the decision that I'm going to make in this moment, in this space? Because it's a totally and radically different conversation, isn't it? What would happen if Christians really took the gospel of Jesus and applied it to every space and every area of life? I am... I spent my teenage years with one of these wrapped around my, my wrist, one of these, I don't know if you can see it, anyone else have one of those? WWJD. Anyone have one? Come on. I, uh, I lived in Southeast Asia, which was very tropical and sweaty and hot, and I wore mine, which was exactly it was blue and white like that one. I wore it for my whole teenage years. Um, I lost it somewhere around the age of 18. I think it had become a biohazard, probably. <laughs> If I'm honest, it was not fit for public consumption. Now, I know we kind of fell out of love with the brand marketing WWJD thing here, but, but at the heart of it was something really good, right? It was something really good, which was this simple question, what would Jesus do? 
What would Jesus do as I tried to navigate being a teenager in a faraway land like so many anxieties and questions and doubts and fears? And this was so helpful to me. What would Jesus really do? That little bracelet helped me keep the main thing the main thing, at least in part through my teenage years. And I wonder if by the fact that we've so easily lost our bracelets and we've gone along to do different things, can almost lead us to lose the main thing as well. I can tell you as someone who leads a church, it's very easy to lose Jesus as the main thing. I can tell you as a human being, as a dad, as a husband, it's very easy to lose Jesus as the main thing. But what if the invitation of 2024 was simply this, could we become just 1% more like Jesus this year? 1% more like him. Our friend Pete Gregg was writing this week, and I saw what he wrote. He said this, even as I set priorities for the coming year, I find myself thinking about those outward changes and sleep and exercise and less caffeine, which can make me less touchy and distracted, more joyful, present and reflective in 2024. But I'm less interested in adding to my resume this year than to becoming a bit more like Jesus. Could that be our prayer? That we might just become a little bit more like him. Because here's what I know, right? I know that at certain points this year, the world will go a bit crazy. I have some ideas about when that might happen and what might cause that. Not saying anything. Um, But I also know that there will be many other things along the road that I have no idea about yet. I know that people will freak out. I know that anxiety levels will spike. I know that stuff online will get a bit weirder because we're just going through it as human beings. But what if we could be something different? Like a non-anxious, Jesus-centered presence in the middle of it all. People who don't get triggered out of fear, but people who are prepared to say this is who he is. And so therefore, this is who I am. Now, I'm sure like deep down, we probably all go, yes, you know, of course, I came to church. That's the idea, isn't it? We become more spiritual kind of people. But how do you do that? And let me offer you two thoughts this morning about how we might take that journey. And here's my first thought, is that we have to do it together. We have to do it together. You see, the problem is, is that when Paul was writing, the problem wasn't that they were a community. The problem was that they were a human-centered community, not a Jesus-centered community. The invitation, I believe, is to always be together, to be united, but to be united in Christ, not in our agreement on everything else that exists. You see, the problem for the early church is that they'd become so obsessed by the human level of leadership that they'd forgotten the supernatural level of God. Just notice what Paul says in verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And then verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You know, as a church staff team this week, we sat with this passage for our weekly reflection. So unbelievably challenging. 
You see, look at the perspective of what leadership is supposed to be. And hey, I'm a guy who believes everything rises and falls on leadership. But the revelation here is that it's only God who brings growth. Only God. You know, as we looked at our year-end giving, I was reminded again, my goodness, vintage only exists because Jesus ordained it to be. We only get to be here because of his provision week after week. This is, as Paul says, God's church. It's not ours, and it's certainly not mine. It's about Jesus. The invitation is to be a community that fixes its eyes together on the gospel of Jesus. And guess what? Sometimes the good news of Jesus is going to be so helpful and kind and easy to us. It's going to be like, that's exactly what I already thought. And there's going to be other moments when it's going to be really hard. There's going to be moments when it fits neatly into the cultural moment we live in. And there's going to be other moments when it's going to seem to totally counteract the world's view of morality and everything else. But we're invited to be a holy community. God's field, his building, co-workers in God's service, Paul says, with the Holy Spirit fueling us along the journey. I want to tell you what my my prayer is for Vintage this year. And my prayer is that we might be more about purity than power. More about conversions than competition. More about people than performance. More about relationships than ritual. More about salvation than even social action. More about cross than conformity. Maybe even more about Christ than contemporary culture. More about personal encounter than politics. And maybe even more about discipleship than donuts. I believe the Lord is calling us to a greater level of hunger to be passionate, Jesus-following community that is prepared to say in the midst of whatever happens, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That we would be those people seeking to figure out what it means to put Jesus first in 2024. But how do you do that? That's my final thought I, I want us to just delve into for a minute. But how do you actually take the journey toward that? And at the start of it, I think it is about having a balanced diet. A balanced diet. Uh, I don't know how your Christmas diets normally go in your house. Um, In the Chase family, I will tell you that most of the year we actually live and eat quite well. I, I think we have the sort of, you know, the main food groups, the main nutritional sources, carbs and proteins, vitamins, fiber. We 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 do okay. Something in December, though, it goes a little bit different. I, I think it's partly because things start arriving in the mail from other parts of the country, of the country and the world, um, and they're usually a bit sugary. Uh, and you know, our main sort of food groups sort of shift a little bit. We seem to move somehow into the diet of Elf. You know, the the, the Ford food groups of Elf. Anyone know what they are? Yeah, candy, candy canes, candy corns, and syrup. <laughs> that, that seems to be what happens in my house. And we seem to fuel ourselves on junk food. And you know junk food, it's like the kind of food that doesn't really take much effort. You just sort of sit back and you sort of like unwrap it and you consume it with a great sense of excitement. And then like half an hour later, you feel awful and hungry again. Like just empty calories. It's a very easy thing to do around Christmas. 
But I reckon it's also a very interesting and easy thing to do in our spiritual lives too. If we want to ask the question, why is it that maybe we don't always feel like healthy Christians? Why is it that our Christian world doesn't feel healthy sometimes? Could it just be that we've managed to create a bit of an unbalanced diet of junk food along the way? Now, let me just explain what I mean. Let me get you to think for a moment about what it is, if you would call yourself Christian, that really fuels your spiritual excitement and growth. Here's a few things on the screen just to give you an idea. I don't know if you can read them, but let me read them out. Teaching of an anointed leader. The big Sunday experience. Ritual, liturgy, Bible studies, times of worship, reading, quiet times with the Lord, encounters with the Holy Spirit, testimonies from other people of what God's done, the great prophecy or the prophetic voice, even the prospect of revival coming soon. Maybe you have some other ones. But just think, which one, two, three, maybe more, like really get you excited about Jesus, excited about what God is doing? And don't get me wrong, I think most, if not all of those things are great. But think about this. How many of the things that really fuel your spiritual life are like passive things like junk food where you sit there and someone spoon feeds them to you and you nod and you go home and it's like, yeah, okay, that was okay. And a few hours later, it's kind of done and you move on with life. How much of your spiritual life is fueled by the passive things that other people feed to you and how much of it is stuff that causes you to actually have to prepare it and work it and work out what you need toward actually having a balanced spiritual diet? Does your spiritual diet point you towards the person of Jesus? Does it help you to get a bigger vision of the glory of God? Does it fire you with the power of the Holy Spirit? And if it doesn't, maybe just maybe we don't have the complete balanced spiritual diet that we need. Because it turns out that you actually have to work pretty hard if you want to spiritually grow. Barrett, the theologian, says mere lapse of time does not bring Christian maturity Actually, as Paul says, we need some solid food. We need to do something. We need to work at it in some ways. Don Carson, theologian, says this, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, and obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness, and we delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide it towards godliness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. Those are tough words. But what if there's a better journey, a journey towards God, a journey toward faith? What if it's actually that we need a pathway? We need tools. We need a community that's going to commit. And what I've come to believe over the last years of ministry is that actually some of that comes 
from actually delving deeply into the life of things that have gone before us. Some of the great spiritual practices, the things that other people have been fueled on. I don't know if you know that good things can come from the past. Did you know that? I am... I uh, have inherited a big old garage, uh, completely full of things. Uh, it's uh, it's the, the, an older gentleman used to live in the house, and he left all his things behind. And along the journey, we've we've looked back at all the old things, and we've had to like go through box after box. And if I'm honest, quite a lot of it's like, yeah, that that saw its day in about 1981. I think we're we're okay. We'll take that one to the thrift store or the, the trash. But as we've been delving through the history, we've also found some really great things. Um, last week, I found like an old movie projector that you fill, feed film into it, and it projects on a wall. Yesterday, though, I found the best thing of all. I don't know if you'll be able to see it from the back. This is what I found. Does anyone know what this is? <laughs> Can you see the camera? Motorola StarTac. A- anyone have one of these once? literally the coolest phone in the world ever, right? When I was a teenager, I'll let you into a secret, I had a fake one. (laughs) Because I couldn't afford a real one. But because I really wanted to just do this. How you doing? (laughs) This is the coolest thing. Actually, the past, believe it or not, has some really helpful things for the present. And so I say all that in a silliness to tell you about the journey we're going to go on. And the journey we're going to take between now and Easter is a journey towards spiritual practice. We're actually going to go with our friend John Mark deeply into some of the deep practices that have fueled Christians for 2,000 years. Some of the things that have taken them through revolutions and empire building and world wars and famines and crises and have fueled the church. And so we're going to go uh, between now and Easter through nine practices and not just talk about them on Sundays, but we're going to invite you into a small group and your small groups are going to look at these different spiritual practices and you're going to practice them together. Some of our groups are going to take up to four weeks on each one of them to really look deeply because here's what we want is we want health. At Vintage, we want a church that's growing. Yes, of course we do. But we, more than that, we want to be people who are healthy followers of Jesus. And so we hope that over these next months, uh, you will come on Sundays. My invitation to you is come along and join us. My invitation to you is come and be part of a small group community that will help to reframe our worldview a little bit more towards Jesus. So is that all right? You up for it? Thank you. Okay, shall we stand and let's pray together? Father God, come Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. At the start of the new year, our prayer is simply this. May we become a little more like Jesus this year. And Lord, we recognize that that is a a tough ask and it's probably beyond our natural ability. And so we start the year by inviting you, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill our lives again?
thank you, Holy Spirit. And Lord, would you fuel our spiritual lives, we pray. Would you excite us with the possibility of knowing you more deeply and more wholly? Come, Holy Spirit. We want more of you, more of everything that you have for us. We want to know more of your truth and your love and your grace and your discipline. We want to know what it means to be people who are sold out for the kingdom of God and the good news of Jesus. And so would you come and fuel our lives, we pray. And Lord, even as we start this journey together, I pray that maybe even for some of us, we might want to want to know you better. We might just have that rising in our spirit that says, yeah, this is who I want to be amongst all the other things we could be this year. Would you set a fire deep in our hearts and deep in our souls, a hunger for you to come Holy Spirit.